You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. What do terrorism, violent crime, and professional acting have in common besides what we see in many movies today? Is there another connection among these things? A connection that can help you understand your unique story? That can give you insights into why any of us do the things we do? A connection that can shed light on our need for safety, our need for danger, our need for passion and purpose? Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. We're fortunate that our host, Audible, is enriching lives. They are offering you, our storytellers, a free audiobook download of your choice, plus a one-month free trial of all of Audible service, and you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you. So keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Today's guest is a man who is intimate with danger, violent crime, and the world of professional acting. Today, He's a film, TV, and stage actor. He's a motivational speaker. In fact, he received the standing ovation for the closing keynote speech he gave on finding humanity amid terrorism and global unrest at the 2015 TEDx Toronto Conference. He's a man of many talents. He was a detective. He's been a consultant on hostage crisis and acts of terrorism to major networks like CNN. He can teach you about sales and negotiating deals. He can teach you important things about showing up in the world as your best self. We are all in for a special treat today as we listen to Paul Nadeau's story. Paul, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you, Louis. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's funny, uh, your call, uh, not funny, but very interesting. Uh, TEDx Toronto is actually uh, going on right now. The 2017 TEDx uh, conference is uh, is happening as we speak. So two years ago, yep, I was on that stage. So fantastic. to this day. Fantastic. Amazing. To this day, that's fantastic. Yep. So first thing I'm curious about is, did you have a kid's dream of what you wanted to be when you grew up? You know, I did. I, I think uh, as we uh, as we start to uh, to form our ideas and our passions and our likes, uh, I I decided that I wanted to become a cop, but not not pretty much like everybody else would think about it. 
my dad was a very mean and abusive man. He was just uh, he was just a monster. And so I developed uh, this idea of becoming a police officer so that one day I could actually put the handcuffs on my father like I'd seen the detectives do on television and on some of the shows. So my dream really became uh, to be a cop and to arrest my dad. Wow. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's got to be the best kid's dream story I have ever heard. <laughs> wow, that is awesome, man. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, my next question is now irrelevant. <laughs> Who influenced you the most when you were a child? <laughs> <laughs> yep, well, we'll get on to the next one. Uh, so, as you were growing up, what was, what caught your imagination? What, what were the things that intrigued you? What were your hobbies? Well, okay. Um, <clears throat> because of some of the beatings I got, many of the beatings I got from my dad, I also acted out a lot uh, in in grade school. You know, I was uh, I was known as a troublemaker way back when, and uh, consequently, a lot of the kids didn't like me. So I used to get beat up by some of the uh, some of the bigger boys in class. So uh, you know, getting beatings at home and then going to school and getting beatings there didn't really appeal to me. So uh, what did and what became a passion and uh, a hobby of mine was martial arts. You know, some of the uh, some of the great martial arts uh, you know stories were coming out, and some of the actors, you know, more martial arts was coming out on TV. And I thought that's for me. So at the age of ten, I used to take a bus, uh, you know, several miles to uh, to an airport uh, area. Uh, they had this. Um, training center in the airport and uh, i'd go there on on saturday mornings and learn how to uh, to defend myself so that really became my passion as a as a young boy was martial arts wow that is <laughs> fascinating now because of what you told me I'm, I'm now i'm really curious about um who else was in your family besides do you have siblings Yes, yeah. Uh, I have two brothers and two sisters. Um, my oldest brother uh, was a victim of uh, my dad's assault as well. In fact, uh, my older brother, and he's uh, he is my very best friend. Uh, at the age of 16, my older brother, who had long hair at the time, we're talking, you know, back in the 60s when long hair, uh, the Beatles had just come out and he wore his hair long. My dad didn't like it. So, uh, my brother stood up to my dad one day, and uh, my dad beat him down and dragged him out of the out of the house by his hair. And at the age of sixteen, my brother never came back home. You know, so uh, uh, he, um, my dad, did not uh, did not assault uh, you know my my older sister. Instead, he sent her to a convent when she was fourteen. Now, my younger brother and younger sister, um, they were far too young, and and uh, you, you consequently were. Um, we're lucky, you know, they, they got away with, uh, without being, uh, without being hurt. And, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that's how the Nadeau family was, uh, really existing way back when. Wow. What is your older brother do? What is your brother doing today? Ah, my God. He is a, a contract lawyer, um, in Ottawa and has been for 32 years. You know, despite whatever happened to us, you know, as a family, it's amazing how we all chose careers, you know, that uh, that were uh, that were great careers, and uh, you know, my older sister, she helps the el elderly people out. Uh, you know, she's got a music program for the elderly. Uh, my younger brother is a pastor. My younger sister, she works with the elderly. So, uh, you know, despite uh, whatever happens to us, and hey, th this is part of my story. It doesn't matter what you go through. What really matters is how you handle 
what you go through and what choices you make as a result of, of you know, what happens to you. We could have all, all been murderers and, and, uh, and robbers and, and uh, you know, bad people or uh, do the same to uh, the people that uh, we're supposed to love and care for. But the opposite was what happened, you know, by the choices that we all made. Oh, I love it. And uh, I don't know if you know, but I interviewed a guy who was part of John Gotti's crew. And uh, he was a violent offender. He did eight years in uh, max security prison and uh, turned his life around in jail, became a motivational speaker and an author. But what was fascinating about the interview with him, that his story was just the opposite of yours. He actually said to me, he said, Lou, I came from a great family. I had love in my family. You see, he said, Obviously, there was some kind of dysfunction going on, but it wasn't related to my my family life. So wow. it's fascinating. Yeah, no, no. His was more like a Henry Hill story where he was watching the wise guys on the street who seemed to have it made and saying, why should I be a working stiff? These guys don't go to work and they have everything. And mm -hmm. he, he got involved at a very young age. He was a, a professional hijacker at the age of 18. <laughs> but, you know, this is not his story. But, man, what you just told me really, really triggered that for me. Is your sister still a nun? Uh, not, not a nun. She she works with the elderly. Um, she uh, She's um, my older sister. She works with the elderly. She has a music program. It's my younger brother who's a pastor. Uh, my younger yeah. brother, uh, yeah, he's a, oh yeah, yeah, he was Why? a police officer, it's funny, he was a police officer, he joined the police, uh, he's five years younger than me, and he joined the police uh, department after going to Bible school, we were all kind of surprised, and then, uh, you know, about 10 years into uh, his police career, a little bit uh, more than 10 years, uh, he, his calling was really, uh, was really becoming a pastor, and uh, the opportunity opened for him, and uh, the universe called him to his job, and he's been there ever since, he's, uh, you know, he's doing remarkable work. Fantastic. You know, because you mentioned that your dad had sent your sister to a convent. Yes, yes. Uh, and that was just to be uh, schooled. It was a oh, convent. Oh, 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 okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, to be schooled. I'm sorry. I see, yeah, I, I should have made that clear. Yeah, she, uh, you know, at the age of 14, uh, they were teaching uh, young girls. It was a school for young girls, and it was in Cornwall, and she was sent there for a couple of years. Okay. Now, I'm just yeah. really curious about what did your father do? I mean, what was his work? He was a, uh, a GM worker, uh, so a line worker. Uh, he used to uh, spray paint cars. And, uh, you know, funny, um, it, there was a good side to him, uh, too. You know, he was charismatic. Uh, he had friends. But uh, in the home, it just, uh, the switch, it just, it just turned off, you know, that charismatic, nice man that he was in, in public kind of switched off when he when he got home. So we all kind of walked on, on eggshells and, uh, you know, um, uh, remarkably, we all survived, uh, as I said, and we all uh, flourished, you know, uh, coming from such a, uh, a, a difficult background. Oh, yeah, also, man. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it, uh, I, I get, I, I'm guessing that your father has passed away. Well, yes, he has. Uh, you see, uh, it was my dream to arrest him, as I told you, but at the age, when I was 17, he... Uh, he killed himself, so I Whoa. wasn't. Whoa. Yeah, he sh he shot himself in the head, and uh, so I wasn't able to arrest uh, my father. But uh, I held my promise, and at the age of twenty-one, I felt uh, my calling was to help others, and uh, I joined the police department. How old was he when he died? Uh, Fifty-one years old. Fifty-one, Paul. I just met you recently, and 
I must say it's inspiring to see how warm and open an individual you are. So you went on to become a police officer and then a top-notch hostage and crisis negotiator. I'm curious, as a child, were you attracted to um, doing risky and dangerous things? As a kid, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, there. as I said, there was that part of me that was lashing out. And, uh, you know, I guess I didn't know how to handle uh, you know, abuse. And I didn't even know it was abuse. I just thought everybody went through it. But, uh, you know, my, uh, I guess, my answer to it was, you know, jumping off the roof of our house, you know, and, and uh, you know, going into caves. I lived down by the, uh, by the Camp X uh, uh, in, uh, in Oshawa. And so we would go and explore Camp X. We'd go, uh, you know, we, we'd, we'd kind of climb down cliffs and, and do all kinds of crazy little things that, uh, that kids should never be doing. But, uh, yeah, we took more risks and survived more times than, than we ought to have. You know, it, hmm. it, it's funny, you know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it, it certainly uh, fed into the work that you ended up doing professionally. By the way, for my listeners in the United States, uh, he mentioned, Paul mentioned Oshawa. No, it is not a segment of Mars. It is actually a, a, a city. Imagine that in, in Canada, not far from Toronto. That is correct. And you know, when I mentioned Camp X, I'm sure that many of your listeners, uh, you know, like uh, globally will uh, recognize that uh, Ian Fleming uh, came up with the concept of James Bond while, uh, while training in, uh, in Camp X. And uh, in fact, the, uh, the name Bond occurred to him when he was in Oshawa at a hotel on a, on a short break from the, from the camp. So he came up, he was looking across the street at this particular hotel and the name on the, uh, on the street sign was Bond. And uh, that's how he came up with the last name Bond. Oh my God. Well, maybe my listeners may know, but I, I just learned that and it's a fascinating thing. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank there you. you. Go. So of course I was going to ask you where to track you to law enforcement. That becomes redundant too. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, James Bond, man. I mean, <laughs> <come on. laughs> but 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 how did you find your calling as a hostage and crisis negotiator? You know, I we my calling and myself we found each other. Um, I had uh, developed a knack for communicating well with people. I had to at a young age. Uh, like I said, from my background, my dad sent me out to uh, to get a part-time job when I was 13 and 14. I had to turn some money over to him from my part-time job. So I learned how to how to ask for work and, and uh, how to communicate with adults. Uh, when I became a police officer, I, I realized that I was very good at, uh, you know, at communicating with uh, with people, both witnesses and victims and, and suspects, uh, you know, w whatever it was. I uh, I was extremely good at getting people to to cooperate and to even confess to me. So um, uh, that being said, there was uh, when I was a patrol officer, there was one particular incident that I handled. It was a 911 call. And as it turned out, uh, it was a suicidal man. And uh, I had had no training as a crisis or a hostage negotiator. And just to be clear, 
Uh, a hostage negotiator is also a crisis negotiator. So not only do we handle situations in which people have been have uh, been held hostage, uh, we also handle situations where people are threatening to kill themselves. So or people are in, are in crisis. And uh, as a as a young uh, you know officer, I walked in on this particular situation and. Uh, you know, a, a man beckoned me into the house, and as I started walking, you know, very slowly uh, and cautiously towards the voice, not knowing what the 911 situation was, I looked up the stairs, and and here was this man uh, with a bottle of Jack Daniels in his left hand, a uh, a box cutter uh, in his right, and he was standing on this uh, this shabby little frame of a, a chair with a noose around his neck, and it was teetering back and forth. And he said, I wanted a witness uh, to watch me taking my life so that you can tell my wife what you saw. And, uh, of course, he was extremely intoxicated and not making any sense at all. Uh, but over the next uh, 45 uh, minutes to an hour, I was able to calm the man down and, and uh, appeal uh, to him to the point where uh, he did drop his weapon and I was able to help him down uh, without him committing suicide. I knew that if I walked up, he had threatened to cut himself and cut me. And uh, you can imagine, you know, with uh, with a chair as, as fragile as the one that he was on at the top of the stairs, um, if anything had gone wrong, uh, that chair would have toppled down. He would have uh, hung himself and lashing out with a box cutter uh, would not have been a pretty sight. So um, after leaving that experience, I, I kind of thought, wow, you know, like uh, that was that was very interesting. And, and I'm so glad I was able to help somebody in distress. And then uh, two, three, four years uh, later, um, an opportunity came up. One position as a hostage negotiator came up and I decided I was going to jump at it. So I put in my name and, and I had a reputation by then, a really good reputation within the police department as being a good communicator. So uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, in Ottawa, they are the ones who, who choose hostage negotiators because they train hostage negotiators, and they're the ones who choose. So when they got my application, they came to Durham, uh, which is uh, the area in which I policed. And uh, after uh, extensive interviews, I was hired as a hostage negotiator. Man, how old were you? Oh, boy. I think, what? Oh, man. I I am gonna I I think it was in my no 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 it was a little later I think it was in my forties at the time yeah okay. my early forty late thirties or early forties yeah okay okay yeah yeah wow yeah and you know what it, it is a it is a, a tremendously difficult job um, but such a rewarding job uh, to be able to communicate with uh, with people uh, you got to imagine Lou. Uh, it's not like uh, unless you're a professional um, hostage taker or you're doing it for a ransom, you know, and you've planned all this out. The majority of hostage takers don't wake up in the morning and say, hey, what a beautiful day. I think I'm going to go downtown and take myself a couple of hostages. It, it's not like that. It, it, it's either, you know, a, a situation, a, a robbery that's gone wrong, uh, you know, a drug deal that's gone wrong a domestic situation where nothing is planned and the moment they realize they've taken hostages uh, is the moment that panic sets in and then the oh my goodness what do I do now and uh, you know that there's a great deal of stress that goes on and they can't hear a word that the negotiator says in the beginning because they are reacting to their own emotions they're they're in fight or flight 
Um, they, they can't hear because their heart is beating so loud. And uh, so the patience of a good hostage negotiator then, you know, uh, comes in, you know, very, uh, uh, very helpfully uh, to sort of calm the situation down and let them vent to the to the stage where you can actually have a two way communication with them and move them towards sound reasoning. You know, like there is a way out of everything and I'm here to help you. I'm here to make sure that you're safe. I'm here to make sure that everybody else in there is safe and that everybody goes, you know, like someplace safe at the end of the day. That's my job. My here, I'm here for you. I'm here for them. You know, so that's that's how a hostage uh, you know, negotiator works. Hmm. Now, in your career, have you also dealt with professional hostage takers who really are people who have planned it out like for a month or two in advance? Have you ever had that situation? <laughs> I never had that situation, but I did talk a terrorist off a 747 in Paris, France in 2005. Oh, I please. Just, oh. I just... Yeah, Come on. Yeah, I just right. happened. Oh, you know, listen, to something we do every day, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got to yeah. tell us, you got to tell us the story now. Well, you know, um, it, it's, it's funny. Uh, when I say funny, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I was in Paris, France, and uh, I was awaiting, I, I was on a peacekeeping mission. In uh, 2005, I went to Jordan, and I was a peacekeeper during the Iraqi war. And uh, I was on my way back to Jordan from a, uh, from a trip, a holiday that I had taken here in Canada. And uh, we happened to be on the tarmac waiting for the plane to, uh, it, to take off. And, uh, of course, a, a delay of, uh, you know, 10 minutes goes by, 15 minutes goes by, half an hour goes by, and everybody's getting a little bit edgy. We're all anxious to leave, not knowing what was going on. And, uh, you know, suddenly I look outside the, uh, the window of, uh, of the plane and I see all these police cars surrounding the plane and armed officers coming out. And uh, so I thought, okay, well, something is going on, and it definitely is happening here. Uh, the uh, pilot of the plane, a French pilot, walked in, and of course he uh, he goes uh, immediately to the area in which a uh, you know a, a passenger had been seated, and he begins this this argument, this negotiation, and I we all realized that the uh, the the individual on the plane had made a terrorist threat to blow it up. And he had done so before we took off, which was very interesting. So uh, while this uh, this terrible negotiation was going on between the captain and this angry, heated passenger, uh, you know that uh, that we all suspected uh, had links to terrorism. Well, at least I did. Um, anybody who makes uh, such an act, you know, like it's, it, that is an act of terrorism. You know, to to threaten to blow a, a plane up. So I, uh, I very cautiously uh, raised my hand uh, to get the attention of the armed police and the captain. And as you know, the captain of a, of a ship or the captain of a plane is, uh, is the leading authority. Uh, you know, he or she has uh, complete control of their vessel. And uh, when I got his attention, I, I moved cautiously up, identifying myself as a police officer and a hostage negotiator and asked if I could take over for him. 
And uh, you could almost feel the sense of relief throughout the whole plane when this guy smiled at me and said, please, you know. So, And the rest was a negotiation with this guy who had committed this act of terrorism. So, uh, I, and, and I'm happy to say that uh, 45 minutes into it, uh, he, uh, he gave himself up to the police and uh, he, uh, he left the plane. And we all had to leave the plane, of course, while it was being checked for explosives. Paul, I'm watching this movie right now. And all of a sudden we cut to a new scene and I'm going to throw something at the screen because I'm going, um, you'd better tell us. I want the next scene. I want the scene that takes us into that negotiation, brother. Oh, to, man. You know, yeah. I mean, what? come on. Share with us how it went from I'm going to blow up a plane to, okay, I'm going to give myself up. I mean... That doesn't happen every day. Most of us can't even get our kids to not eat the cookies. Well, you know, you are absolutely right. Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> life is one great big negotiation, is it not? Absolutely. We are selling and negotiating every day of our lives in right. one way or another. Uh, with with this man, um, I had to I had to focus on him uh, with with the threat being reality and appeal you know and again you walk up to to a threat with open palms you know palms open you you walk up you know i mean you no harm you know i and and the guy sitting beside this guy terrified white knuckled man sitting in the chair um i asked him if i could take his chair and and of course he uh, he almost bumped me over as he as he rushed away and I sat down with this man and uh, just began to talk to him. And I said, uh, you know, you've you've made and of course, we, we state the obvious, you know, like uh, you've made a terrible threat to blow up the plane. I've got to know what's going on. And, uh, you know, he just looked at me with his angry face. And, uh, you know, he had already had a heated exchange with the with the pilot of the plane. He was angry. And to have made such a threat, I don't even know how they how they figured out how he had made the threat. Uh, I was not told, uh, you know, how they discovered that he had made the threat. And it was a matter of getting him to vent and his frustrations and his anger. And uh, he never told me whether or not there was a bomb on that plane. But, uh, you know, I appealed to his uh, his family. I appealed to everybody else's family. You know, we, we were talking about something serious, you know, like uh, I don't know how you know, how you've planned this or what you've planned, but the threat, you know, like uh, you don't want to die here today. Nobody wants to die here today. You know, we've got to find out what's going on. I've got to find out how you're feeling, what's going on inside of you and what would ever uh, prompt you to, to make such a threat, you know, and is it real? And uh, it, it's really um, negotiating is really about getting into a conversation in which you get the other person to vent to tell you what's going on in their life, what their distresses are, uh, you know, what it is that motivated them to, uh, you know, to, 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 to cause, you know, like harm to somebody or to take somebody hostage or to make such a threat. And it really is, you know, there was a, a negotiator, a hostage negotiator in New York back in the 1970s. And apparently this guy negotiated hundreds of, of uh, you know, hostage takers and he was so successful. I wish I knew his name because I, I can't seem to find much on the internet about him. But the one thing that he said, one of the keys to great negotiations, he said, I can sum this up in three words, he says, 
time, time, and more time. You know, so yeah, that's more than three words. But it is a matter of taking your time. It is a matter of getting them from a state of of uh, extreme anger or or uncertainty, and just in a calm voice. One of the methods that uh, hostage negotiators use is to uh, to use what's called a DJ's voice, where we talk a little softer and a little slower. You know, as though you're in a late night DJ. Uh, Chris Voss uses this in his book. Uh, he talks about using that DJ's voice. So it really is about uh, people tend to mirror the behavior that they are witnessing, you know, with another human being. So if one person is angry, they tend to mirror that anger. If one person is calm, they tend to mirror the calmness at some point. So our job is really to start talking a little softer and, you know, just just trying to calm the situation down. The mirroring you just described sounds very much like what they do in NLP. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Have you studied and, any? Yeah? Uh, you know what? I, I never really did study NLP. Um, I, I, I was interested. I, I grabbed a couple of books, but I never really, uh, you know, read through them. But we, uh, we as human creatures, we, we tend to... Uh, if we like someone or like a situation, we tend to uh, to mirror the other individual. Just watch uh, two people on a date. You know, they're at a restaurant and, uh, you know, if they're sitting, you know, as far back in their chair as possible, you could probably say that that date is probably not going too well. Uh, but at some point when somebody leans in, the other person leans in, there's a mirroring that takes place. Um, even, uh, you know, like uh, when you begin to trust, you know, people will... They will work with you and they will cooperate with you when three things, you know, actually uh, occur. When they know you, like you, and trust you. Now, you can get to know someone very quickly, Lou. You don't have to know them, uh, you know, for a long time to gain their trust or to gain their likability. But when people start to do that, they get a little bit closer. We begin to mirror each other. They're, we do it non it, without conscious. We just do it, you know, naturally. It, it, it's ingrained in us prehistorically. Uh, you know, and it, it's just a way, I guess, of communicating that, that, you know, we are, we are trusted or we can trust you, we can work with you, you know. So I, I never really did study NLP, but uh, it sure does come in handy when you understand what, what body language or, or what the body is conveying. Oh, yeah. I like what you said about it goes back to prehistoric times because, I mean, literally, our prehistoric ancestors had to be concerned about when they saw a creature or something they hadn't seen before, the first question is, will it eat me? Should I yeah. kill it? Should I kill it? And, you know, once they figured out no, then maybe they could relax more and begin to trust it. But what I love about the no, like, and trust, and you must know this, that is the formula for all um, seven-figure marketing, <laughs> you know? Yep. No like so and true. No like and trust. Now, what I would like to know again about this man that you successfully talked down from possibly blowing up a plane. When he was venting, what kinds of things was he most angry about? His uh, his anger was really about uh, about the circumstances that were happening in his country. The uh, you know the. Um, what he called an invasion, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, the war, the, the Iraqi war. He was, uh, 
it was more, you know, political uh, than anything else. And uh, I, uh, I have no idea, Lou, uh, you know, to this day, because I, I never interviewed him after he was taken into custody. But I have no idea how deep rooted, uh, you know, his anger went or or why he chose to to or whether even, you know, when I call him a terrorist, anybody who makes a terrorist threat in my mind is, you know, committing an act of terrorism. So you look at them as terrorists. So yeah. if he had any links or association to terrorism, I cannot tell you to this day. All mm-hmm. I can tell you is that if you make such a threat and you are politically motivated in some way or that threat was made politically mo- motivated to get attention or to do whatever, uh, you know, like his his venting was really about uh, about the about me being in his country, about uh, Americans, uh, you know, fighting in his country, you know, all these uh, all these problems that, uh, you know, that were going on during the Iraqi war, you know, like was was what motivated, I guess, this action. And whether it was to get attention or whether it was to, I, I, to this day, Lou, I don't know. Well, what's really amazing is that he was angry and you represented the enemy. And yet you were able to transcend that and get this guy relaxed enough to actually not follow through with his threat. That's powerful stuff, man. You know what, Lou, it is. And, and uh, you know... Again, uh, I was extremely successful as a as a professional interrogator. I, I interrogated murderers and got murderers to confess, rapists, child molesters, uh, gang members. Um, you know, I was uh, at at one time, uh, you know, the uh, the top ne- ne- uh, sorry negotiator, but uh, the top interrogator, uh, you know, in in our jurisdiction. And uh, my success rate was uh, was almost like 90 percent, you know, 85 to 90 percent of the people that I would interrogate would end up confessing. Um, and I attribute that, you know, to to a lot of a lot of things. But number one, despite what somebody does, you know, and, and this is this is what was one of the key ingredients to my success. Despite what somebody does, we have to separate the act from the individual. Which means if we look at the individual as being the act, you know, the person who's who's uh, committed the crime against us or against somebody else as a criminal, then we are, are less likely to make a connection, to build a rapport with that individual. You have to separate the act from the individual and talk to the person like a human being who still has some decency. Later, you can bring the act in. Later, you know, I mean, I, mean, I would walk in and I would say, I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to find you guilty of anything. I'm only I'm only here to find out the truth. And, and uh, I need to get to know who you are. You know, let's put aside what you did. But I just need to get to know who you are right now. You know, that's what I really want to do, because people are saying terrible things. And uh, I haven't heard your side of the story. I've only heard one side of the story. I really want to find out who you are, you know, and, and you, you begin that conversation by separating the act from the individual, and whether it is a terrorist, a terrorist saved my life, as a matter of fact, in the Middle East, and that's a whole different story, but my, I'm here today because a terrorist saved my life uh, it, during uh, my mission in Jordan. And oh, Hold uh, on, I, hold on. We're going to get to that as well, because that's very... <laughs> no, no, yeah, yeah, come on. You, you, you can't be dropping things like that and then say, oh, you know what, let's go on and talk about something else, because it ain't going to happen. But what I love about what you just shared separating the act from the person uh that's profound man and it's see ah 
I mean, that the ability to do that goes beyond the, the work that you do. I mean, it's a formula for helping people in love relationships when the love relationship goes wrong. Uh, I think it's a formula for ultimately for world peace. If people would have the dedication to learning it and the strength to apply it. You're right. Um, I, I discovered, I, I discovered this Lou, uh, quite on my own. Um, and, uh, when it began to work, you know, for me, it worked, uh, throughout my entire career with people, uh, you know, with, with, uh, violent criminals, with, uh, you know, with, with, with terrorists even, uh, with, um, you know, with people in crisis, uh, and you're right. It is a formula. Uh, for world peace, which is one of the things that I, you know, that, that I would love to contribute to, and and uh, you know, I, I've I've given a TED talk uh, on that very issue, uh, and and my talk uh, was was really about uh, what I'm talking to you about right now is separating the individual uh, from the act that they've committed, so that you can connect on a human. We are all brothers and sisters. We are all born from one race, the human race. If you cut yourself, everybody's blood color is red. And I will tell you, despite the fact that you you may have a different color skin, uh, you know, th than I do, it does not it does not remove us from the fact that we were all born out of Africa and we are all one big family, you know. And and our appearances, you know, reflect the environment in which uh, we live in, and that's it. If we hold a person's, you know, transgressions against them and and behave towards them like a criminal or like somebody who's wronged us, even in love, as you said, which was really good, Lou, you're right. It works in love. You know, don't look at the act. Look at the person. Remind that person of their goodness, their inner goodness. Everybody's got some, you know, and, and be willing to understand and open the channels of communication. Later, you can talk about what what hurts you or what is hurting you so that the two of you can start working you know together uh, at resolving it i give lectures and and uh, keynotes on on resolving conflict and this is one of my one of my theories is do not bring the act into it first bring the person into it first later we can talk about the act or what it is that that, that you know has us in, in conflicting corners, you know, let's treat everybody with dignity and respect. Let's talk before we resolve, you know, and then we can resolve successfully. Wow. Is this line from a play familiar to you? No. If you, well, I didn't say it yet. How could it be? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, good. you're good. I'm listening, man. I'm, I'm going to keep my mouth shut here. <laughs> The line is, if you prick me, do I not bleed? Ah, that is so true. Do you know where that's from? No, I don't. You ever hear of a, a minor playwright named uh, William Shakespeare? I Yeah, you know what? Yeah. That name does ring a, a yeah. small bell with me. Do you, wow. hear, do you ever hear of a minor play called The Merchant of Venice? <laughs> of course I have. And an, in, and an insignificant character named Shylock. Yes, sir. That's wow. what he. That's what he says when he's talking to the Christians. 
It's one of his key lines. When you prick me, do I not bleed? Mm, that is profound. And you basically said that. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. It, it, yes, to me, did. Lou. Yeah, to me, Lou, that's one of the keys to success uh, in in dealing with just about anything in life. When we begin to see a person, the greatest lesson, one of the greatest lessons I learned as a police officer was to recognize that the person standing or seated across from me was more similar to me than they were different. That person was, you know, was really so, as I said, similar. We are not that different. And when I begin to treat a person the way I want to be treated, and, you know, this goes back to so many religions, but when we treat that person the way that we would like to be treated, when we put their shoes on for just a minute and, and, and experience what it is that they must be going through and not hold what they've done against them, you know, like later, as I said, my job, I had to charge these people. You know, that was my job. My profession was to arrest and to, uh, you know, to send for prosecution, you know, murderers and, and uh, whoever had broken the law. But in, in so many, like almost every case, they would shake my hand and thank me after they confessed their crimes. They'd shake my hand, call me by my first name. Hey, Paul, thank you, you know, and knowing that they had just confessed to murder and that they were likely to go to prison, they would still thank me, Lou. When you think about that, when you think that you can actually reach someone to the point where they thank you after they confessed, you know, to, to a crime that they know they're going, you know, to, to jail for, is, does that not, uh, you know, shout out that we ought to be treating everybody, you know, more decently with, with, uh, with respect and dignity, uh, uh, the way that we want to be uh, treated ourselves, you know, world peace, you know, ca you know, sitting down and talking and listening, listening to somebody without judgment, you know, like do not judge, you know, like it, it, you're going to, you have to deal with the act, but deal with the act after you deal with the person first. Wow. I mean, you know, what, what you're describing here is uh, extremely profound. I mean, you're talking about the person, if they're thanking you, it's because you relieved them from a very painful burden. In in a way, it's the role that a confessor is supposed to fulfill, but many confessors don't because they're just not that good at it. But that's amazing stuff. I mean, it is. It's transformation. It's life-changing stuff. And, you know, it's interesting because I actually had a question that I was just going to throw at you, and you already have touched on it because I was going to say to you at one point, I'll say it now. It's appropriate. Mm -hmm. So, Paul, what is similar between you and a violent criminal? What is similar? Yeah. Like, what do you guys have in common? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, we are brothers. We, we, uh, you know, despite the fact that we may have been born and raised in different homes, what's similar is that we have all experienced, uh, life in one form or another. You know, we breathe, we, we, we react and we have similar or, or, and different experiences, but we all experience something. So the similarity is the fact that we live our lives. We all live our lives. We are all faced with, uh, you know, with a number of different things uh, on all different levels. 
but uh, the similarity is that, um, and, and that's a very, a very deep question. It, it, it's our blood flow, man. It, it, it's the well, fact that, sorry? No, go ahead. You know what? Yeah, yeah, I, th it, I it, think it, you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. And m may I suggest something here? I'm sorry for interrupting, but may I suggest something that I, I know that you intuitively know it because if you didn't intuitively know it, you could not do the work you do or did. Uh, do you still do that kind of work? I consult now for major uh, networks uh, like CNN right. and, uh, you know, yeah, uh, I don't uh, I don't do that kind of work, but I teach it now. I teach right. it in my conferences. I teach it in my keynotes. I teach people how to uh, how to be successful, uh, you know, in negotiating and right. in selling and in crisis management. Well, here's what I was going to say, Paul. You correct me if you feel I'm wrong, but sure, sure. What, 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 what I think that we all have in common, that includes you, me, uh, my dear storytellers listening to this show, and every criminal on the planet, is that we all have the same basic human needs. For example, when Stephen Paddock the Vegas shooter at the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas senselessly killed so many people. The world was understandably in shock. They were horrified, and they needed something to help them understand, to pull them out of the chaos and restore their sense of order and security. So the main question became, why did he do it? Why did he do it? And one of the most puzzling and frightening things was that he didn't seem to have a motive. How about the need for significance, which in many people today, it's been stifled. They don't feel they're significant. And if you bury that and it's not fulfilled, the person feels like they don't exist, like they're not heard, they're invisible, and to become significant, they may do something monstrous like that. I agree with you uh, uh, 100%, Lou. It's uh, it's fine. Yeah, yeah I, I couldn't come up with words, but I've used those very, very words, is that uh, we all need to be heard. Yeah. We all need to feel significant. Yes, you're and right. Significance and, uh, is only one of them, but it's one of the most powerful human needs. And if it gets thwarted and you feel like you're insignificant, like people don't see you, that you're invisible, you know, if you don't get a healthy channel for that, there could be a disastrous result. I totally agree with you. you I know? totally agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I know, like I said, you understand it instinctively because. I mean, you're doing it. Now, I'm curious, as a, an interrogator, how do you know when a person is lying? Let's say they're really good at it. I mean, they're really persuasive, charismatic, but you know that they're lying. How do you know? What are some of the signals, the tells that you look for? Okay. Um, one of the things that, again, one of the really important things to do if you're trying to detect deception, which is what we're trying to do, is to establish what we call a baseline. Um, so, you know, before you get right into the crime, and, and 
And so many inter interrogators make this mistake. We see it on TV all the time. Coppers walk into uh, the interrogation room and they say, we know you did it. You got to tell us what, we, you know, what you did. And, and uh, you know, like uh, we got witnesses and stuff like that. And of course, a guy's back is going to get up. He's going to deny everything. And, and, you know, that's Hollywood. And but that is reality in a lot of uh, a lot of um, uh, interrogation rooms is that the police don't take uh, the time. Or, or the interrogator doesn't take the time to sit down and get to know the person. Remember, I'm going to bring in what I told you before, separate the act from the individual. I really do want to know who the person sitting across from me is. I want to know if there's still some goodness in them or, or what motivated them to do it. But I need to know who they are. So I want to build some rapport. I want to see what they, what they normally look like when they're relaxed and when they start to open up. And we're talking about the weather. We're talking about a movie we saw. We're talking about, you know, like uh, their kids or, or, or their favorite sport. You know, so we take that... 20, 30 minutes, you know, just to chat and get to know each other. They're going to cooperate if they know you, like you, and trust you. So you build that up. And then when you do bring the act, you know, when you do shift the conversation over to, you know, the subject matter, say, for example, a robbery or, or a theft, you know. So let's talk about, the, you know, the disappearance of that $2,000. I'm taking mental snapshots of what this what this man or woman looks like when I'm talking to them about their family, about their their you know uh, their trip or whatever it is, whatever we were talking about, and then when I bring the subject matter in, I'm taking mental snapshots every two seconds. What is it about their their uh, tone of voice? What is it about their body ha that has changed, and how has it changed? Has it gone from being soft to being hard? Has it gone from looking at me in the eyes to averting, you know, their, their gaze, you know, to looking up, to looking down, to looking nervous, to biting their lip, to to scratching? The body falls apart, and I want to see where the body falls apart, and I want to see that that change, and I'm going to compare it to what I have been experiencing and watching, you know, for 20 minutes when they were relaxed and we were chatting and laughing and talking about everything, and now we talk. And bring you know what it is that they've done or allegedly done. We talk about that. Are they still relaxed? You know, and if they're still relaxed, hey, I have no idea, and their body language is open. They, you know, then you have to start to assess it. Maybe you you might not have the right person here. But if that body changes significantly enough to being defensive, their tone of voice starts to crack or get uh, you know get more nervous or whatever. Then I have to I have to compare. And I'm, I'm making a, a, a mental chart in my head, you know, how many red flags, you know, am I accumulating? And when will I make a positive confrontation that there's no doubt in my mind that they have been deceptive to me and watch the reaction from there? So mm -hmm. it is a process. It is a process. And, you know, and this is true of, of, of so many things. You know, when, when you want to get to the truth, you need to. You need to take a moment, you know, to to chat and, and converse and, and, and find out and relax an individual, bring the subject matter up later. You know, again, separate the, uh, you know, the act from the person, but watch, be be very watchful and be very attentive. You know, watch your own body language. It's so important to watch your body language. What, what you know, are you conveying anger? Are you conveying uh, defensiveness? Are you conveying something? And, and if you are, <laughs> they're going to mirror you, right? So, uh, you know, when you, when I detected deception, 
it wasn't just one thing. It was a series of different things. Suddenly, their language becomes different. Their choice of words becomes different. Their body starts to break apart. And I'm looking at all these things. And then I throw them a lifeline, you know, to, uh, you know, to, to sort. We need to justify the wrong things that we've done. You know, if you break the law, you, you justify it in your head. You know, if it's murder, hey. That guy deserved it, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, or, or it was just my job or, you know, they provoked me. You justify it. If you break the law when you're when you're speeding, you're going to justify that, too. You're going to say, well, I, I have to get somewhere. You know, like I'm going to be late. You know, like uh, so you justify you take something. Well, I really need to pay to pay the rent this month. I really needed to, uh, you know, I have to pay my visa. I have to do something or I have to buy my drugs or I have to do this. We justify the wrongdoings that we do. We're, we're, we're all, we want to, at the end of the day, we want to try to sleep peacefully. And how do we do that? We justify our wrongdoings, you know? Uh, and if we don't, then that tension and that nervousness, you know, it, it eats you up, you know? So, so if somebody treats you with dignity and respect and you're, you're really being eaten up inside, you know, and I'm watching for these cues that tell me that I've got the right person, then I will use a series of, uh, of, um, well, a, a method to try to to appeal to whatever justification that they used. Does that make sense? Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. Now, once you know, you've you've seen the change. You've seen, you found the gap, so to speak. What kind of statement will you make that would be like a, you know, a showstopper for them? The 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 thing that confronts them and makes them recognize that they've now hit a brick wall. Lou, there's no doubt in my mind, no doubt in my mind that you did this. Absolutely not. I got to know you in the last 30, 40 minutes. And I know you're a good person. There's no doubt in my mind that you did this. And I'll tell you why. And I tell you what, what I think and what the reason behind that is. You know, and then if there's an objection, you handle that objection. No, we're past that. You know, it, it, it's a, it's a method, you know, like uh, they've got, you know, they don't want to argue with me anymore. They like me, you know, and, and, and I didn't do this to trick them. Not at all. I told them right from the very beginning that I wasn't there to judge them. I wasn't there to find them guilty of anything. I wanted to find out the truth. But if they are still lying to me and, and, and we do this in life, we should do this in life. If we, if we feel that somebody is lying, we, we need to call them out on it at some point. We need to say, listen. You know, I, I believe, and I'll tell you right now, I don't believe that you're telling me the truth. I think that you did this, you know, and we need to find the right moment. That's the showstopper right there. There's no doubt in my mind, none whatsoever, that you did this. You know, I no. love it. Now, I love it, but may I share with you what the actor in me would do in a situation like that? Sure. Paul, you know, you're one of the kindest and smartest men I've ever met. And you touch me. You really understand me. And I appreciate that. I think we should go for a drink now to discuss how someone, <laughs> someone, someone as smart as you could be so wrong with your final statement that I did it. You know what, Lou? I'm going to disagree with you. And, uh, and I talk from, uh, from hundreds of these uh, interrogations. Uh, I'm not going to give away my playbook, but I, I will tell you that... Uh, that uh, the methods uh, that I used were were respected by the courts, they were accepted by the courts, 
and the people that uh, you know that uh, I spoke to uh, would agree. Did I always get somebody to confess? No. You know, I mean, there, like I said, there was that 10 or 15% of people that would never confess. Or the really good liars, the psychopaths, the sociopaths, you know. Sure, we're going to, sometimes we miss, you know, like uh, the shots that we take. But if we don't take them, we won't, uh, we, we won't succeed. We hey, gotta Paul. Paul, yep. it seems like you're defending what you do. I wasn't, I was playing. I was playing. I was not, uh, I, you know, <laughs> in any way challenging you and saying, well, I don't think it works. And I think it's brilliant. It's powerful stuff. That's mm. wonderful. You know, I didn't see it as a challenge. I, no. I saw it as, as maybe, uh, you know, like, uh, I, I saw it maybe as like the actor in you would say this. But remember, um, it's easy for us during a discussion like this where nothing is really at stake for mm -hmm. us to say what we think we would do. No, of course. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Because, uh, you know, I immediately go into a character and say, okay, let's see now, what would Hannibal, <laughs> what would Hannibal Lecter do? Right? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Yeah, because I mean, you, yeah. invite you for dinner. He would invite me for dinner. Oh, I yes. Like have you for dinner. <laughs> Never mind the drink. I would like to have you for dinner. Oh, man, <laughs> man, man. Now, you know, this is just, we could go on for six hours. I love this Good. stuff. But, you know, uh, just a couple of more things. If you, in a nutshell, entrepreneurs listening to this right now, this is for you, Paul. How can someone use just a few of these psychological techniques? to close more sales, to explode their business if they wanted to. Yeah, and also to deal with, uh, with conflict. Um, I, uh, you know what, I give, I give great keynote uh, talks on this very uh, subject. I give uh, seminars, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing a couple coming this week. And it, it, the idea is here, um, it, they are so powerful, you know, like uh, these psychological um, ways of treating people are so powerful. Begin, really, if I could leave you with something, is begin to look at the person across from you as being more similar to you than they are different. Mm -hmm. Treat them the way that you would like to be treated. Be open, honest, uh, you know, use your, your body language and your voice effectively. And if you want, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, techniques and tools that I have, then, you know, get a hold of me and, and, and uh, we can talk about it. I love it, man. Do you have any online courses? No, I'm, uh, I'm going to be developing some, but I don't have any yet. Okay. Yeah. Uh, where do you see yourself in five years? I, uh, I'm going to be working on uh, on one of my stories and make it into either a feature film or a short film. So I see myself still acting. Uh, I see myself working towards world peace, like which is something I would love to do. And uh, I still see myself doing uh, keynotes and seminars because this is my passion. I love I love to talk with people. I love to educate people and to share my stories. So I see myself doing pretty much what I'm doing now, but even more. Because, Lou, uh, I don't stop. You know, like new ideas come into my mind. Uh, you know, I, I've written a book. I'm going to be working on a second book. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm always looking for the next opportunity. The universe sends me messages, you know, and it sends each and every one of us messages. It, it's got great energy. 
And, uh, you know, like uh, I, I did write my first book and it was uh, three people in one week that told me I should write a book. And if that's not a message from the universe, I don't know what else is. But most of us ignore those messages when when they are when they are strong messages, we ignore them or we choose not to act on them. And unfortunately, when that happens, you miss great opportunities. Mm-hmm. Great, uh, really great answer. Um you know, we may have to do another podcast soon because I really did want to delve more into your acting career, what led you into it and everything like that. But for now, I would just love to know, as an actor, what kind of roles do you usually get cast in? Yeah, uh, I have not been typecast as a cop. Uh, I've done, uh, you know, I've done a biker. Uh, I've done I've done detectives and I've done uh, a lawyer. I did a doctor. And uh, so I haven't been typecast, uh, which is nice. But I'll tell you something. Some of the best roles and some of the ones that I enjoy doing the most is being a detective or, you know, I've never done a hostage negotiator. I'd love to because when you when you are so familiar with something, you need not act, you know, then the believability, the credibility comes through. And you would know, Lou, you like, I mean, when we are ourselves on on the screen. People, people understand it. They connect with it. They buy it, you know. So uh-huh. I, I could, I could do a great detective. I could do a great lawyer. I could do a, a, you know, a great interrogator. I could do a great hostage negotiator. Those are the roles I love the most. Fantastic. What is your favorite book? I'm going to say, um, I've got two. Uh, I'm going to say that, um, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, is uh, is one of my favorite books. Um, of course, you know because it speaks to such a, a profound message, and the one that I've I've uh, used and adapted and and uh, appreciate. And the second one is The Alchemist. Yeah, who did that? Because I, 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 geez, you know what? I, I I can't even think of uh, of who wrote that one, but uh, I, it was written a long time ago. It's a nice little story. It has uh, you know great little lessons in it, and uh, I've got to go back and read it again. You know. Fantastic. How about a favorite quote? Oh, uh, you know, I got a couple of them, too. Uh, and not to say that they are favorites, but they come to mind. Um, Albert Einstein once said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, but expecting different results. And when I find myself, you know, like, uh, you know, at a, at a crossroad or, or at a, a wall and I'm thinking, why am I not getting to where I want to go? Uh, I have to start thinking about what Albert Einstein said and say, change the direction, change the path, do whatever, you know. And, and uh, so so that is one of my favorite quotes. The other one is Lao Tso's, uh, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a second, uh, well, sorry, with the first step. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. That's it. And I added something to his. I said that the idea is to keep moving forward. So those are two of my favorite quotes. Mm. And the loud so is that from the art of war? Yes. The journey of a single. S- no, the journey, the journey of a journey thousand, of a thousand miles, miles. Right. Begins with a single step. <laughs> the journey of a single step. Begin. It begins when you come out of the womb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Wow. So those, are, no. those are my my favorite quotes, you know. And I, if I could leave anybody with some some. Um, Final thoughts, really. Is, Before uh, you do that, I want to know how they can contact you, and then we'll get to your final thoughts. 
Oh, sure. Uh, you can contact me, uh, you know, uh, through uh, email. Uh, my email address is J as in Juliet, J Paul Nadeau. Uh, so J P A U L N A D E A U at gmail.com. J Paul Nadeau at gmail.com. What about and a I website? www.jpaulnadeau.com And uh, who would be your ideal client, a person who would hire you? They would be, um, you know, corporations, uh, businesses that are looking to uh, to train uh, their employees how to negotiate uh, and deal with people more effectively. Um, corporations and businesses, or I even individuals that want to learn how how to deal with crisis or how to effectively communicate uh, with somebody using uh, using body language and using words, you know, like uh, they just want to communicate with their customers more effectively, or people who want to teach their, their workers how to deal with conflict, like uh, police organizations, uh, major businesses that, uh, that enforce, uh, you know, different laws or different uh, statutes, uh, you know, how do how do you deal with uh, with conflict? How do you deal with the person on on the other end of the phone or somebody that you go visit when you know that there's going to be a conflicting situation? So if you're if you're negotiating, uh, if you're you know selling, and you want to learn how to do that using hostage negotiator techniques, I'm the guy to come to see. You know, I'm the guy to hire. Uh, if you want to deal with conflict, if you want to deal with uh, with crisis, you know, like uh, more effectively. Um, then I'm the person to see. So really, it, it, it's a wide open field for anybody who deals with hu humanity and humans. You know, like, uh, and, and again, you know, if you if you want to look for peace, man, I, I I can I can help you find it. Fantastic. Now, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing in the world, what would it be? Oh wow! Ah, <sighs> change hatred into love. That's imagine. That's yep. yeah. Imagine. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think it can be done. I think it can be done. That's a wonderful, wonderful thought. And what are your final thoughts for our storytellers? Well, you know what? I, I'm going to ask everyone uh, not to keep yourselves hostage. You know, like, uh, and when I say that, we are our own worst enemies because we listen to those little voices in our heads so often that those self-sabotaging voices in our heads that tell us that we're not good enough that we can't succeed, or we listen to somebody else and we adopt what they say as the truth that keeps us down, it keeps us from succeeding, keeps us from feeling good about ourselves. So, you know, my my um, message to, to everybody, my final thoughts is really stop holding yourself hostage to self-sabotaging thoughts and listen to the universe, be strong, and recognize that you are worthy. You know, I think of Rocky, uh, the Rocky movie, and, and uh, you know, uh, the world isn't all sunshine and rainbows, you know, like it can be a nasty place, right? Um, but the idea is that life is gonna knock you down, but it doesn't matter how many times it knocks you down, it's, it's how many times you get back up, you know, like, and, and the voices that you tell yourself to keep going despite adversity, uh, to, to look, you know, for the best, you know, in people. Uh, so I could go on, but really, uh, it is a matter of being your own best friend, changing that self-sabotaging uh, voice in your head that tells you you're not good enough, turn the language around, stop digging the hole, put the shovel down, look for the way out, and be encouraged that everything, every beautiful thing can happen 
the world can change as long as you are open and receptive to it. And if you are attracting great energy, great energy will come to you. When I look at my background and the wonderful things that have happened to me, it was because I chose to change that language in my head, you know, to go from the negative things that I told myself as a kid to the positive things. And when you start telling yourself positive things, you start believing it. And then you start acting accordingly and the universe recognizes it and says, hey, Lou, hey, Paul, hey, John, hey, Susan, you know, I'm here and I'm going to give you some great gifts because you are worthy and we are all worthy. Wow. Beautifully said. You changed your story. Thank you so much. You've um, I don't even know if you're aware of how much enrichment you've given us today. Thank you, Lou. It's uh, it's a pleasure of mine, and it is one of my uh, one of my goals is to enrich the lives of of people. And uh, I really appreciate this opportunity, uh, you know, to, uh, speaking with you and getting to know you. Uh, a chance meeting that turned into this. Uh, you're a remarkable man. I love the work that you're doing. Uh, you are you are changing lives, and uh, your podcast is is changing minds. And uh, you and I are we're connected. We're brothers. Thank you, Paul. I received that. Thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Paul Nadeau. My conversation with Paul has enriched and challenged me enormously. It will live inside me for the rest of my life. I'm willing to guess that many of you have also been deeply affected, deeply touched, moved, by what you heard. Paul is a special human being with a very powerful human message. He referred in this podcast to a life-changing event for him. In fact, it was literally a life-saving event. He told us that a terrorist had saved his life. After we ended this particular podcast, Paul and I continued to talk for some time, and I recorded his account of that day when a terrorist saved his life. You will find it, along with this podcast, as a separate 17-minute show. The title of it is Beyond Terror. Enjoy it. Learn from it transform from it. And by all means, let me know what, you're, what you've taken away from your interaction with, your experience of Mr. Paul Nadeau. As I've been doing recently, I will offer the first three of you who reach out to me a 30-minute free consultation. During that time, we will look at any area of your communication that you would like to make more clear, effective, compelling, and I guarantee you that at the end of those 30 minutes, you will have begun to change the way you communicate to the world. Simply reach out to me at lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com or at Lou's Club, L-O-U-S, 
C-L-U-B at gmail.com. Paul referred to a couple of books that have impressed, touched him, and influenced him. I referred to a book called Radical Forgiveness. These books are game changers, and you, as a listener to this show, have access to one of them or any other choice that you make on audiobook by sim- for free by simply going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. Definitely pay this episode forward. Let people know that they can hear it on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. And always remember that you have a free gift waiting for you at that podcast. I mean, at that website. It's a downloadable free ebook that I created for you called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Now, I have a special, exciting announcement for you. During the next week, I'm going to be moving my podcast to a new hosting service. Of course, it will still be available to you on iTunes and at the other platforms that uh, I've mentioned. However, some of you who come to this podcast on your uh, mobile apps may suddenly discover that the show doesn't appear. If that's the case, you will find it by going to this URL, https colon forward slash forward slash, that's double forward slash, dibianco, d-i-b-i-a-n-c-o dot sound. A-W-E-S-O-U-N-D dot com. Of course, that is all lowercase, and all sound is one word. I'll repeat that URL. H-T-T-P-S colon forward slash forward slash dbianco dot awsound dot com. Today, Paul spoke about judgments, about getting beyond our judgments of other people. And he has done it and continues to do it in very difficult situations. My view is that all of our judgments are made-up stories that color the way we see the world and other people. Many of those stories get in our way They stop us from growing, and they can even lead to very destructive and hateful behavior. My challenge to you in the next week is to take an unflinching look at your stories about others and be willing to consider changing them. And of course, as always, begin with this powerful question, how can I change my story, and change my life. 
Tune in to the next episode of Luis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.